take your Bibles. We've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. If I could get guys to get those doors back there. Uh, let, me, uh, let me call your attention once again to uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, notice this next part. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Um, what... What's that verse or those two verses speaking of? Actually, a couple of things they're speaking of. Inspiration. Inspiration. Authority. What else? A topic that we're going to look at tonight, uh, and the reason we got to get started, a video by Dr. Stephen Lawson. Do you know who Stephen Lawson is? Uh, Stephen Lawson is a teaching associate with Dr. John MacArthur. Uh, in fact, he leads one aspect of the D-Men program, the Doctor of Ministry program, there at the Master's College and Seminary. Uh, Stephen Lawson, at one time, he pastored one of our key Southern Baptist churches, also Dolphin Way Baptist in Mobile, Alabama. But like I say, he's on staff with Dr. MacArthur. And the video we're going to look at tonight is one in a series of messages that uh, he preached at a conference that he held down in the uh, Philippines. And the conference was on, don't miss this, what I'm about to say, the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. So when you think about the sufficiency of Scripture, think with me again about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says all Scripture is God-breathed and, and is what? Profitable for what? Doctrine. Reproof. Correction. Instruction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul is making a statement there about the sufficiency of Scripture, is he not? Now, let me review something for you. In talking about Scripture, the sufficiency of it, and, and dealing with the issues of authority. Back during the uh, Protestant Reformation, what did the church at the time, remember the church at the time was the Roman Catholic Church. So according to the church that Martin Luther went up against, what was the church saying the sources of authority were? The church? The church itself? And Brad, I think I heard you say the second one. Pope? The edicts of... And then what else? Tradition. Okay. Luther came along. And uh, now keep in mind that the chief issue in the Reformation was over the issue of justification. Meaning, how is a person justified in the sight of God? How is a person justified in the sight of God? But the underlying issue to it all was the issue of authority. What is our authority in the church over issues of justification or over anything else for that matter? And so, again, they said the church... And the edicts of popes, ooh, let me, let, me, let me change this. Because in all honesty, along with the church, this was traditions. They also said scripture. I wasn't thinking when I wrote that down. 
the church and her traditions, the edicts of popes, the papal statements they believed were what? Infallible. Infallible without error. And that the church likewise was infallible without error. And so to the Catholic Church, their source of authority was all three of these things. Now, was the Roman Catholic Church the first to do this? To say something like this? Yes, precisely. Thank you. Mark chapter 7. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? You remember that? That the teaching he gave them about what they eat doesn't defile them. You remember that whole passage? What did Jesus say they were doing with Scripture? In Mark 7. Anybody? What now? He said, you're setting aside Scripture for the sake of your traditions. You're setting aside Scripture for the sake of your traditions. And Jesus castigated them for doing that. So the Catholic Church wasn't the first to do this. Uh, so Martin Luther said no. And, and by the way, all Protestant churches and Baptist churches since, there's only one source of authority. And what is it? It's Scripture. It's Scripture. Luther said in his debates with the church that popes have erred and that church councils have erred. But that scripture does not err. Uh, Luther rested his position on the authority of scripture and scripture alone on the inspiration of scripture. That's what he, he, he believed in the inspiration of scripture. And because he believed in the inspiration of scripture, what's the offshoot of inspiration? It's inerrancy. It's precisely because we believe in the inerrancy, I mean in the inspiration of Scripture, we believe it is inerrant, without error. Okay? Now, did Luther despise church councils? No. He didn't despise church councils. In fact, he valued them. For instance, what the church council at Nicaea had said about the person and work of Christ. He valued church councils greatly. And the conclusions church councils had come to. However, he said church councils cannot be put on the same level as Scripture. When it comes to a reliable source of authority in the church, there's only one. And that is Scripture. So he didn't despise church councils. He didn't despise church traditions. What he despised was trying to put those on equal footing with Scripture. Okay? Now... In 1978, some evangelical leaders across America were beginning to see in the modern-day church an erosion of confidence in the inerrancy of Scripture. So they met in Chicago. And uh, the whole statement is about 13 or 14 pages long. I've just given you the bullet points, uh, the shorter statement. If you look it up on the internet, the shorter statement comes up first. And then the rest of it is affirmations. First of all, they deal with denials, what they are not saying. And then they deal with affirmations of what they are saying. Like I say, it's about a 13-page about a type document. 
And all in all, you know, I've given you what? How many names here? I've prob- there's probably 18 names on this list. There are probably about 36 people in all. I've just given you a sampling of some of the names that were a part of that. But the short statement, number one, God who is himself truth and speaks truth only has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. Statement number two, Holy Scripture being God's own word written by men prepared and superintended by his spirit is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Number three, the Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our mind to understand its meaning. Four, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching. No less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. And then number five, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. I would encourage you just simply to Google the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy and read the whole statement. One of the most important statements in the past couple of hundred years as to the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. And again, why did they do this? Because evangelical leaders were witnessing across America an erosion of confidence in the church on the reliability of Scripture. So I wanted you to have the the shorter statements. But again, keep in mind what, what differentiates us and other Protestant churches from the Roman Catholic Church is even today, they will still say the source of authority in the church is the church and her tradition, the edicts of popes, they believe that popes can uh, issue infallible uh, papal bulls, they call them, statements, and then scripture. They say all three, whereas Protestants say no, our authority is scripture. Now, listen to Dr. Lawson tonight. Uh, Again, for those who came in uh, late, Dr. Lawson serves with Dr. John MacArthur at Master's College and Seminary. He's over one aspect of the D-Men program, and this message is on the sufficiency of Scripture. And I want you to take notes uh, because there are some key things that he's going to say in this sermon some key things that I might quiz you on when it's done, okay? And before you can leave church tonight, you have to pass the quiz. I'm going to instruct the ushers to lock the doors and not let you out if you can't pass the quiz. Uh, This was a uh, conference down in the Philippines uh, that was put on by Dr. Lawson's ministry, One Passion uh, ministry. So I'm going to ask Jonathan to, to get it started. And we We're may have to end it early. Of the Bible and what it will accomplish in your life and what it will do as you minister it to other people. So this is really at the heart of Christianity. We're not talking about a subject that's peripheral, uh, that's secondary, uh, that is on the side uh, of lesser importance. We're talking about that which is at the very epicenter of Christianity. We're talking about the word of the living God. Um, You cannot be a Christian without believing the Bible. Uh, You cannot grow as a Christian without following the Bible. Uh, You cannot be used by God without being equipped with the Bible. And so God has entrusted to us this book 
which we call the Bible. And we're going to spend our whole day today talking about the Bible. Uh, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to have to be able to, to come together at a time like this, to be able to worship the Lord, to sing together, but also to dig down into the Word of God and to give careful thought uh, concerning this very important book. So I want to begin by talking about, in this first session, what does the Bible claim to be? The Bible is like no other book in the world. It is the greatest of all books. To study the Bible is the noblest of all pursuits. To understand it is the highest of all goals. To believe it is to lay the greatest foundation. And to live it is the greatest of all blessings. The Bible is a supernatural book. It is a book that has been written by the one true living God. God is the author of the scripture. And so I want to talk in this first session about what does the Bible claim to be? This is so foundational uh, to our Christian lives. And I have some eight headings that I want to walk through with you now in this session regarding what does the Bible claim to be? And where we start, number one, is with the divine inspiration of Scripture. Uh, the Bible claims to be the very breath of God recorded onto pages of paper. Uh, to begin, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is the signature text in the Bible itself regarding what the Bible claims to be. And Paul, as he writes to Timothy, his young son in the faith, Paul has written 13 letters that are in the New Testament. This is the last of the 13 epistles that Paul wrote. At the end of chapter 3, this comes really at the very end of all that Paul will have to say to the church in all generations. It's been well said, last words should be lasting words. And this is no time to talk about uh, unimportant matters. As you come to the end of your life, Paul is in his second Roman imprisonment. He is in the Mamertine prison. In but a very short time, he will be taken to the ocean way, and his head will be severed. This is the last correspondence that we have from the Apostle Paul to come out of that hole in the ground that of the Mamertine prison, where there is hardly any light going down into this cell. And these are among the last words that we will ever hear from the Apostle Paul. And we understand that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And this is at the heart of the main thing. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture, and the word scripture means writings. It comes from a Greek word from which we derive the English word graphics. All the sacred writings. In fact, in the previous verse, he defines it for us in verse 15 when he says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. And so it's the objective, written, tangible word of God. He says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There you find the sufficiency of Scripture. The one who is equipped in the Word of God and trained in the Word of God is adequate for every situation and every ministry opportunity and every demand upon you as you serve the Lord within the will of God, 
The scripture is totally sufficient to make you adequate. Nothing else needs to be added. Nothing else needs to be augmented to the scripture. The scripture is self-sufficient within itself to enable you to do the will of God in serving the Lord. But you'll note at the beginning of verse 16, he says, All scripture is inspired by God. When he says, is inspired by God, it's actually just one word in the original Greek language. When Paul wrote this, he wrote it in, in the Greek language. And it's just one word, and that one word, theonoustos, which means God breathed. The scripture has been breathed out of the mouth of God. It's not the authors of Scripture, the human instruments that were inspired. It is the Scripture that is inspired. And the idea really is not so much inspiration as expiration. It has been breathed out of the mouth of God such that every book, every chapter, every verse, every word... Every jot, every tittle is the breath of God, meaning that God has spoken it and that God has declared it and that it is the breath of God in that sense. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation came from Satan to turn these stones into bread. And Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus was making an affirmative statement of the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that every word of the Bible has proceeded out of the mouth of of God. With any passage of Scripture, there is in reality two authors. There is a secondary author and there is the primary author. The secondary author refers to the human instrument, the human author that God chose to record what is written. And God chose this man, he would write with his own personality. He would write with his own temperament. He would write with his own vocabulary. He would write as a result of his own research and his own observations. Luke sounds different from John, and John sounds different from Matthew, and Matthew sounds and writes different than, than Isaiah and David. The individual personality of each of the writers was retained. Yet they are only the secondary author, small a. There is but one primary author, capital A, and that is none other than God himself. The Bible is divine revelation. It's not the result of society. It's not the result even of the church. It's not the result of the collective wisdom of, of a number of spiritual leaders. It has come down to us from the very mind and the genius of God to us. It is God's revelation of himself and of his salvation. It is God's revelation to us. As we study the Bible, we make a careful distinction between what we call general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is general in the sense that it is available to every man and to every woman who has ever lived. It is general in the sense that it is revealed through creation, it is revealed through history, and it is revealed through conscience. General revelation is spoken of in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. In Romans 1, verse 20, talks about, speaks of the, the 
the invisible attributes of God being put on display in creation. We can look at the world around us and, and see something of what God is like, that God is powerful, that God is transcendent, uh, that God is faithful and consistent, that God is a God of, of detail and precision. That is general revelation that comes primarily through creation. But general revelation is not sufficient to save. There must be special revelation. And special revelation has come to us in the written word of God. It is special because it alone brings the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to us. No one can look at creation and know how to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is contained only in this book that is divinely inspired by God. That's what makes this book so special. Without this book, we could never find God. Without this book, we could never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Without this book, we could never grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without this book, we would not know how to live while we're here upon this earth. And so special revelation is found in the Word of God. And it contains God's will for your life and my life. It, it, it represents God's grace for our needs. The Bible is an out-of-this-world message that has come down from the throne of God above and has been recorded by 40-plus authors and is contained in the 66 books of the Bible. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, said in the 19th century, this volume is the writing of the living God. Each letter was penned with an almighty finger. Each word in it dropped from, an, from everlasting lips. Each sentence was dictated by the Holy Spirit. Albeit, Moses was employed to write his histories with fiery pen, but it was God who guided Moses' pen. It may be that David touched his harp and let sweet psalms drop from his fingers, but it was God who moved the hand of David. It may be that Solomon sang songs of love or gave forth words of wisdom, but it was God who directed Solomon's lips. And on and on Spurgeon's quote goes. This is where we begin our day and our time together by affirming our commitment that the Bible is what it claims to be, that it is the divinely inspired Word of God. It does not contain the opinions of man. It does not contain the, the collected wisdom of secular thinking. It has come to us as divine revelation from God. Number two, not only do, does the Bible claim to be inspired, but number two, we want to speak to the inerrancy of Scripture. You see, if the Bible is what it claims to be, if the Bible is the inspired Word of God and not the Word of man, if the Bible has indeed proceeded from the mouth of God, then it must be inerrant and it must be without errors because God is holy and God is flawless and without any sin and without any error. Let me give you some verses that will help nail this down. Titus 1 verse 2 says, God cannot lie. There are some things that God cannot do. God cannot contradict himself. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. Hebrews 6 verse 18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. 
In Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie. You and I have all lied in our life. And every person who has ever lived has, has lied. But God has never lied. He is a truth-telling God. And so when he speaks, he speaks that which is perfectly accurate. And as his word has been recorded, it is without any error. Psalm 12, verse 2 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your words, meaning the composite of all your words, is truth. And Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is tested. And the idea is putting a, a metal into a fiery furnace, and it is so heated and so hot that the impurities rise to the surface and are removed, and all that is left behind is the, is the pure metal, the gold or the silver. Proverbs is saying, the word of God has been put to the test, and it has been tested, and it has found, been found to be flawlessly perfect. And Jesus himself said in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by your word, your word is truth. Now, I know what some people think. They, they think, well, how could fallible, sinful man record the perfect Word of God without his prejudices, without his errors, without his limitations seeping into the record? Well, I would point you to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a similarity in this sense between the written word and the living word. How did Jesus enter this world? God chose a virgin. Her name was Mary. She did not know a man. And Luke 1 verse 35 says that the Holy Spirit conceived within her the holy offspring the Lord Jesus Christ. And there we see a perfect example of how God can take a sinful woman like Mary and so work by the Holy Spirit in her that the offspring is the sinless, perfect Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in just the same way, God the Holy Spirit has worked through these 40-plus human authors, fallible as they were, to record His Word without any error or without any mistake. This is the inerrancy of Scripture. And were there to be even one error in the Bible, that in and of itself would be a fly in the ointment that would contaminate the whole, and we would never have confidence in the Bible except we understand that it is inspired by God. It comes with the very character of the holiness of God, and it is without error. This leads us to third, the infallibility of Scripture. And the infallibility of Scripture means that all that is recorded in the Bible must come to pass. If God has said it, so it will be. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, Jesus himself said, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Did you get that? All will be accomplished according to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Every promise will be fulfilled. Every judgment will be executed. Every purpose of God revealed in Holy Scripture will come to pass. Nothing will be left on the table. Nothing will be left 
left unexecuted. It's the infallibility of Scripture. Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And in John 10, verse 35, again, Jesus himself said, the Scripture cannot be broken. And then it's to say the Scripture cannot falter. It cannot fail. And let me just tell you this. If Jesus was wrong about this, then Jesus would be a sinner who has, who has lied to us. And if he is mistaken about this, he is unqualified to be our Savior, and you and I are still in our sins. But Jesus is the sinless Son of God. And every word that proceeded from his mouth was flawless and was perfect. And Jesus, as he spoke of the way of salvation and of the kingdom of God, he also spoke of the infallibility of Scripture. And Jesus said, the Scripture cannot be broken. I've retranslated this from the original Greek language, and here's how it actually reads. The Scripture cannot be broken. It means what it says and says what it means. But fourth, as we're considering, what does the Bible claim to be? Is it just another book? Fourth, we must affirm the authority of Scripture. This divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible word is therefore divinely authoritative over our lives. This book has the authority over our lives. Every one of us here today, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, you are under the authority of the Word of God. Now, this book has the right to rule our lives. This book has the right, demands the place of preeminence to rule our churches and to rule our ministries. This book contains the authoritative commands of God. Let me just give you a few cross-references. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 15, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, This we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, what I am writing to you in this letter is not my word. It is not our word. It is not the word of the church. And it is certainly not the word of any denomination. It is the word of the Lord. Therefore, this book, the Bible, is the highest arbitrator in the church and over our lives in every matter. Everything yields to the authority of the word of God. Every church tradition yields to the authority of the word of God. Every pastor... Every spiritual leader yields to the authority of the Word of God. God reigns and rules in and through our lives by the authority of Scripture. The Bible is not giving us suggestions. The Bible is not offering to us options. The Bible is speaking to us with the very sovereignty of God Himself. In Mark chapter 7, in verse 12 and following, Jesus, as He addressed the Pharisees of His day, the Pharisees who had come up with their own human traditions, their, their own thoughts on how to, to know God and how to live their Christian life and their traditions and the way that we've always done things became elevated over the authority of the Bible itself. And so Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, as he addressed the Pharisees, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. 
And if you hold to the tradition of men, you automatically, by necessity, neglect the commandment of God. And Jesus then said, excuse me, that was verse 8, now verse 9 in Mark 7, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And then in verse 13, he said, you are invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which, ha which you have handed down. Now, there's nothing wrong with tradition as long as tradition is based upon the authority of the word of God. But when tradition is contrary to the word of God, then tradition must go. And the authority of Scripture must remain. It is the Bible that is the supreme judge over our lives. And it comes to us with commanding authority. Number five. The perspicuity of Scripture. That, that may be a new word for you. In some ways, it is for me. The word perspicuity comes to us out of the Reformation of the 16th century. The word perspicuity simply means clarity. That the Bible is the most crystal clear book in divine revelation to us. It is lucid. It is understandable. As the Spirit of God would enlighten us. Let me give you some verses. And this is a very important point. I don't want to let this pass us by. In Psalm 19, verse 8, we read, The commandment of the Lord is pure. And when it says pure... It's not referring to the inerrancy of Scripture. It's referring to the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture. Like pure water, you can see into it and see what is in there. As opposed to muddy water, murky water, you cannot see into muddy water and see what lies within it. In this sense, the Word of God is pure. You can see what's in it. It, it. It's not oblique. It, it, it's not obscure. It is rather unclouded and it is obvious. As I flew into Manila a few days ago, there were clouds in the sky. And as I flew in, the clouds blocked my ability to see parts of the Philippines. But then, as the plane turned and we circled back to the airport, there were no clouds. And I could see the beauty of this land. I could see that the tide had, had, had come in. And that there were certain houses down there that now you couldn't walk to because they were on stilts as the tide came in. I saw the beauty of the waves coming and crashing into the beaches. I saw the beauty of the, of the green growth. I saw the beauty of some mountains. That's the way the Bible is. It's not cloudy. You can look into the Bible. And even a child can see the way of salvation. Even a common man who, who has never been to college. And barely went to high school. Has a very limited education can see for himself. She can see for herself. You don't have to have a PhD to understand the Bible because God knows how to communicate. And the Bible is written with, with such clarity. Let me give you a couple other verses. In Matthew 19, verse 4, when the Pharisees were confronting Jesus about the subject of, of marriage and divorce and, and remarriage, Jesus responded and said this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Have you not read? Do you have two eyeballs 
Do you have two brain cells that are touching between your ears? Because if you can read, you would know. It's that crystal clear. Some people say, oh, the Bible is just so hard to understand. Not in matters of salvation. Not in matters of how to pursue godliness and holiness. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow. This is what the Reformation was all about 500 years ago. The Church of Rome chose to keep the Bible away from the people. They said the people, the common person, was too stupid to understand the Bible. So therefore, we will not give you a Bible in your own language. We will preach to you in Latin, even though none of you know Latin. And we'll tell you what the interpretation of the Bible is, and we will tell you what you need to know. So just sit still and be quiet. And the reformers came onto the scene, and they said, no, it is the total opposite that the Bible is crystal clear and that the common man can have a copy of the Word of God in their own language and they can read it for themselves. And so Martin Luther translated the Bible into German and William Tyndale translated the Bible into the English language and 90% of the English Bible that you hold in your hand was the result of William Tyndale long before even the King James Committee came together. In fact, William Tyndale was a part of, he, he, was, he had just come to Christ. He was serving as a tutor on a very large estate, uh, teaching the children of a, of, of a man in aristocracy. And there was a Catholic priest who came to the house one day to visit. And they got into somewhat of a heated debate. And the priest said, it would be better to have the Pope's law than the Word of God. And at that moment, William Tyndale made a decision that would direct the rest of his life, that he would translate the Bible into the English language. And he said, when I am finished translating the Bible into the English language, a plowboy in the field will know more of the Bible than the Pope in Rome. And that is exactly what happened. And the English Bible came to us as a gift because William Tyndale and John Rogers and Miles Coverdale and others believed that this is an understandable book. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. What's hard to understand about that? What's hard to understand about the fact that you're a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And that He is the Savior of the world. What's hard to understand the words of Jesus when He says, Enter by the narrow gate. What's hard to understand when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is crystal clear. And so the Scripture affirms its own perspicuity. Matthew 22, 31. Regarding the resurrection of the dead, Jesus said, Have you not read? If you can read, you can know. But I must move on. Number six. And we're just laying a foundation that we're going to build upon for the rest of the day. We need to know what does the Bible claim to be. Number six, the sufficiency of Scripture. And that really is the title for our entire conference, but the truth of the sufficiency of Scripture is interwoven with so many of these other headings that I'm giving you that we really cannot have one without the other. A sufficient Scripture must be inspired, must be inerrant, must be infallible, and must be clear, and must be authoritative. So as we come now to the sufficiency of Scripture, 
We are saying what the Bible is saying. That the Bible is completely sufficient to carry out all God's saving and sanctifying purposes here upon the earth. That this book is all sufficient to save lost sinners, to sanctify believers, to strengthen the weak, to steer those who need guidance. You can put a man into a prison cell with a Bible, and he is self-sufficient to live triumphantly and victoriously. You can put a saint into a hospital room and to be given the news of an imminent death. And the truths that are contained in this book are sufficient to strengthen and encourage and build up even when we walk to the valley of the shadow of death. Let me give you some verses. Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and turning seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So here's a picture of how sufficient the rain is to cause the seed to grow and for the crops to prosper. There does not need to be added other alloys. Even so, verse 11, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner in, in the manner for which I sent it. Every one of God's elect will be saved through the sufficiency of Scripture. None will be left behind. Every one of God's saints will be involved in the process of sanctification as they grow and develop into Christ's likeness through the Word of God. And the only other books you really need are books that help you understand this book. Because this is the cornerstone. This is the book. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which I have already read, but I want to make a couple of additional comments. It reads, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be, next word, adequate. It's a Greek word that means lacking nothing. It is a Greek word that means complete. You see, the man and the woman who has the word of God lacks nothing in living their Christian life, certainly as they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then note the next word, comma, equipped for every good work. Not some good works, not a few works, not a lot of good works, for every good work. Every good work that God calls you to do within the will of God, the Word of God makes you adequate and you are equipped to accomplish it. This word equipped means to be perfectly furnished. And it was used of a ship that would leave port and sail across the, the vast ocean or from one part of the Mediterranean Sea to another and everything that was needed for the passengers on board that ship was already put on board the ship. They would equip the ship such that nothing else was needed until they reached their final destination. It's the very word that is used here in 2 Timothy 3.17. You and I are equipped. God has put everything that you and I need to know in this book. In order 
that we would live in a manner worthy of our calling. And that is the sufficiency of Scripture, and we will enlarge upon that in a little bit in our next sessions. But number seven, we ha I have two more to go. Number seven, I want you to see the immutability of Scripture. This is what the Bible claims of itself, that the Bible never changes, and it never needs to be updated. It is forever the same. It speaks to every generation on every continent in, in every age. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. This word settled means fixed, unalterable, irrevocable. How long is God's word settled in heaven? The answer is forever. Now listen, society changes, culture changes, morality changes, nations change, men change, fashions change, traditions change, but the word of God never changes. Right is forever right. Wrong is forever wrong. It is the same from one generation to the next generation. Psalm 119, verse 160. Every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. It is chiseled in stone. It can never be altered. After I graduated from college, I, I went to law school. I thought I wanted to be uh, a lawyer. And as I went to law school, I... I studied constitutional law, criminal law, civil law, and our entire grade would be the final exam. And so you would go into that final exam with somewhat of fear and trembling. And so I would memorize case law throughout the semester with this dread of the final exam. And there were a couple of times after I had stayed up late, gotten up early, memorized, read, studied, scrutinized, I found out that some court had changed the law. Oh, all of that studied for nothing. And God was using that in my life to cause me to want to study a law that never changes. That what I would study in my 20s, I would preach in my 70s. We'll have to stop there. We were a little bit late getting started. Uh, what, are, what are the words he wanted us to remember? I hope you wrote the following down, inspired, because it's inspired, that leads to what? Inerrancy, which also leads to what? Infallibility, which leads to what? It's authoritative. And then what was that fifth one? It's clear, the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity. Number six sufficient. Whatever God calls you to, the scripture is sufficient to equip you to do it. And then lastly that we heard tonight was what? Immutable. It does not change. As he went on to say, um, as he's dying, he can pass on his sermon notes to the next generation and it's the same word that they're preaching. Amen? So you see, in the Protestant church, in, and in Baptist churches all across the land, what is our sole source of authority? It's Scripture. It's not the church and its traditions. It's not popes or leaders because both err. 
Both do wrong, but Scripture never does. Now, in this series, we're going to get into some very practical stuff in weeks to follow. How you can better read and study your Bible. I've been wanting us to lay the foundation before we turn a corner and get into issues of application.